You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love stories of a pioneer, of an iconoclast, a true maverick in their field, that type of person who asks the hard questions and attempts something new and really advances things in their particular field. Now, medicine is filled with stories of these kind of folks, these true originals who who started some new treatment or attempted some new kind of surgery that ultimately led towards saving many, many lives. One of these such people, his name it was Alfred Blaylock. He was a doctor who created an operation that would in some ways usher in the modern era of cardiac surgery. He was somebody who helped create a new technique that has been used years and years and years afterwards, saving many, many people. He was the type of guy who wrote a bunch of articles and gave lectures and received a bunch of awards, including being named Baltimore's Man of the Year in 1948. He was even nominated several times for the Nobel Prize in Medicine, and his portrait graces the halls of Johns Hopkins. What's fascinating as you look at Dr. Blaylock's accomplishments, and I imagine would be the case if you looked closely at the life and the career of any beloved pioneer in the medical field, is that those folks rarely, if ever, did it all by themselves. There were always other people behind the scenes teams that helped get them to that point. In Dr. Blaylock's case, there was one particular person behind the scenes who made a massive contribution, and yet for years, he got virtually no recognition. His name was Vivian Thomas. And Vivian Thomas was actually paid as a janitor because he didn't have a medical degree, but he worked as a lab assistant and a researcher alongside Dr. Blaylock. He was such a talented surgeon that at one point he was trying one of these new cardiac techniques on a dog and Dr. Blaylock saw it and said, that looks like something that the Lord has made because of how well done it was. In fact, when Dr. Blaylock started trying his new techniques on human patients, it was Vivian Thomas who stood at his shoulder and coached him through the surgery to help him have the greatest degree of success. Now, eventually, Vivian Thomas was recognized, given honorary degrees and awards on his own, and he's had his name attached to procedures and different awards and buildings, and eventually, he too got his portrait hung at Johns Hopkins University. That is one story of likely many in the medical field, and every other field for that matter, where when we look behind the scenes, we see people helpers, coaches, parents, teams that bring about these great accomplishments. Sure, you'll get that person who's out front, who is considered the the, the goat of whatever it is that they do. Just, Just recently, LeBron James broke the NBA scoring title, and so that discussion of who is the NBA's goat, the greatest of all time, what player is that greatest? And while that's an interesting conversation to have, these guys are on teams. 
that play with certain rules and certain times and in a certain league. There's a lot of other factors going into any individual's success. They are playing a team sport. Well, I came across Thomas's story in my study for today's text, a text that is all about how the church should look like a team sport, where individuals come together bringing their different skills and their different resources and their different gifts, and together they accomplish something much, much bigger than themselves. And I think this is something that we all want. All of us want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Even the most rugged, marble, individualist type person still wants to be on a team or be part of something bigger than themselves. It's like we want to be both a superhero with these unique gifts, but also on the Avengers at the same time, recognizing that together we are better than when we are alone. That is what is supposed to happen at church. Church is a team sport. Now, I know that's not always how we approach church. I, I think sometimes when we think about church, we think about it as an event, something that we attend, a place where we go, where there are paid professionals who sort of serve us and then we're spectators and we decide whether we like what is being served to us or not and then we sort of take it or leave it. That, that's sometimes how we approach church. And if we're in that zone of trying to find the right church fit for our family, well, there's some sense in that, right? That can make sense to try to understand what is this church about and is this a church that I want to be part of or not? But at some point, we are all called to be part of a local church, to actually show up to church, not just to see what we can get from it, but to show up to church to see how we might give to it. So today, we're going to see a beautiful picture of what it can look like when a church is operating with a bunch of individuals who are gifted, but who come together to be part of something bigger. And we're going to look at three important things that Paul mentions in this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, we've mentioned the last couple weeks that there were some problems that these Corinthian believers were facing in their homes, yes, but also in their churches. When they showed up to a church service, they brought the good old God of self with them, bad old atheism, as we talked about last week. They brought this sense that they were individuals who are uniquely gifted by God and that they should be heard. And so when they would get together, they would fight over communion. They would fight over head coverings, which we looked at last week. And they fought over these spiritual gifts that they had. In chapters 12 to 14, this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Theirs was a culture that was simultaneously intellectually arrogant and deeply spiritual. Temples and feasts, religious rites, spiritual experiences, that was the norm in Corinth. And so they wanted to be both the smartest person in the room and also the most spiritual person in the room. Now, in our culture, we don't often connect these two things, being incredibly intelligent and also like really spiritually experienced or something. We, we have a tendency to be, well, a little bit narrow-minded culturally and a little bit materialistic. What I mean is we tend to think of being really intellectual as being sort of opposed to spiritual experience. We look at anybody who's overly um, 
what we would call excessive in their sort of spiritual approach. We look at those people and we say things like, oh, that, that person's being superstitious or something. And so we tend to be a little bit uh, Western, a little bit more like the wealthy people who think that spiritual realities are kind of out there, but it's not something that we're really going to experience in the daily. And the reality is that's sort of culturally narrow-minded. Much of the world is far more open to the supernatural realm than many of us are. We also tend to be a little bit materialistic. Now, I'm using that phrase in the philosophical sense, this belief that nothing outside this world exists. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, you'd say, well, I mean, definitely I believe in a spiritual world and all that. And yet so often when we look at things happening in our world, we immediately jump towards defining them, diagnosing them, figuring out how does education play, how does body chemistry. We almost never think that anything is truly a spiritual experience. And so we, didn't, we, we sort of struggle with marrying this idea of being really intellectual and really spiritual together. But the Corinthians weren't really this way. They were concerned about demons trying to influence and invade their lives if they ate the wrong foods, or attended the wrong feasts. This was something that they were really concerned about. They would show up to their worship gatherings, perhaps expecting some sort of ecstatic spiritual experience. They had learned that when a person places their faith in Jesus, that person has the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But they did, just didn't know how this was all supposed to work corporately. Like, should they all show up to church expecting to have these spiritual experiences? Could some of them have the Spirit of God and others not? Were some of them like gifted with first class sort of spiritual gifts and the others were gifted with like second class spiritual gifts? Could anyone and everyone just show up and say or do whatever they wanted if they felt like the Spirit was leading them? I mean, how do you bring a bunch of spiritually gifted individuals together who are kind of like willing to argue and really passionate? And how do you get them to kind of gel as a team? They were such a mess that my tendency, if I were their pastor, would have been like to just shut down the whole spiritual gift thing. To say, you guys can't handle this. You are becoming too individualistic and this is just causing chaos. So just show up and shut up. That may have been my tendency if I were their pastor, but that is not what the Apostle Paul does. Instead, he gives them this very beautiful picture and teaches them on this subject of spiritual gifts. And so today, I want us to see three things about the church as a team sport. Three G's for today. The glory, the gifts, and the gathering. So let's start with number one, the glory. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, these first few verses, which at times as I've read this, I've sort of glossed over, these are really, really important verses. Because what Paul wants them to know right here from the very beginning is that spiritual experiences are not self-validating. Spiritual experiences are not self-validating. What, what I mean is that just because somebody has an experience that they think is spiritual and meaningful, that doesn't necessarily mean that that experience is from God. 
Feeling something really strongly does not make something real or make it right. For example, you could have a spiritual vision given to you by a being calling itself Moroni and giving you a special peepstone so that you could write a New Testament of Jesus. And you would call it the Book of Mormon. Or, or you could have a being who named himself Gabriel, who gave you a new vision and called you the new prophet and painted a different picture of Jesus and you wrote it down and it's called the Quran. And in both of those cases, they present a Jesus who is different than what we have in our Gospels. Thus, we can know it is not from God. It is a demonic distortion. And the Apostle Paul here says, listen, anyone leading you away from this Jesus, this resurrected Jesus, this Messiah Jesus that we have revealed to us in God's word, anybody leading you away from that or any experience leading you away from that is not of God. Your spiritual experiences must point to the glory of the resurrected Jesus. That's what all of these spiritual gifts are about. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. I know some of you think that you're, well, experts in spiritual experiences. And some of you feel some things very strongly and maybe you had some like profound sort of mystical moments but if any of that led you away from Jesus or made Jesus less or pushed you towards isolation or division or confusion or chaos, that is not of God. Our God gives us gifts. The Holy Spirit empowers us to move towards understanding Jesus as Lord. Now, everything that follows in this chapter starts here with this Lordship of Jesus. That's why we've called this sermon series Centered. The church in Corinth was in a world that was spinning wildly out of control, almost like an amusement park ride. And the Apostle Paul is trying to help them settle their feet on solid ground and recognize who Jesus is and what he has done. That he has saved us from our pasts and that he has saved us for this future home in heaven and, and he has saved us for right now. And that through the Spirit of God, by God's grace, we have been given empowerment to live our lives here very, very differently. To live in deep community with one another and to serve each other for the glory of Jesus. That is what these chapters are all about. Now, before we get to part two, which is on the spiritual gifts, I am aware that this subject matter has been fairly controversial in some churches kind of in recent-ish church history. Some of us can remember the fights that some of these gifts caused in the 80s and 90s. There were churches that split. There were friendships that ended as a result of people arguing over which of these gifts are still in operation today. Like, is prophecy still for today? Or is the gift of tongues a known language or a prayer language? Are gifts of healing still a thing? People got in fights over this and arguments over this sort of thing, with one side accusing the other of being overly emotional, while the other side accused them of being callous to the Spirit of God. And it's kind of fascinating that this subject with the Apostle Paul taught them with the express purpose of knitting them together ended up causing tons of division. Well, by God's grace, we are a church that has people from a number of different backgrounds. We have 
former Catholics here. We have former King James-only Baptists here. We have former Pentecostals here. And everything you can find in between those three, we have them here at our church. And I think this is actually a very good thing because I grew up around a theological mix when it comes to the subject of spiritual gifts. So in grade school, my family attended an evangelical Presbyterian church. At the same time, I went to Missouri Synod Lutheran schools. Well, those are kind of different traditions when it comes to these spiritual gifts. And then in college, I went to a Dutch Reformed college, and I attended a charismatic church on the weekends. And then after that, I went to seminary and did my master's degree at kind of an independent Bible seminary that's very similar to what our church is now, which is an independent Bible church. And so I have been around all kinds of different people as it relates to how they've understood this issue of spiritual gifts. I have loved ones and friends and pastors and elders who have differed on some of the specifics of these next chapters, but by God's grace, the majority of the people I've been around have refused to allow these differences to become contentious. They have done this by keeping their focus on the glory of Jesus, by holding and being unified to essentials, but giving grace and some room in some of the non-essentials. Now at our church, under the heading of the Holy Spirit, our church's doctrinal statement states that various spiritual gifts are given. It just doesn't specify beyond that. Here, take a look at this real quick. Partway through this section on the Holy Spirit, you can see, he gives various gifts to believers, equipping them to strengthen each other's faith and proclaim the message of Christ to the lost. Now, we can discuss and even argue about which gifts we think are for today, but at GBC, we believe that the Holy Spirit gives various gifts. Now, and again, some of us are focused on a couple of them, and we can talk about that as we study chapter 14 in a little while, but you can agree or disagree with someone in your small group and still call each other brother and sister in Christ. I've been very blessed by our elder board in this because this has never been an area of contention for us. While I know that over the years there have been folks on different sides of some of the specific issues in this, this has never caused us any division because we're united by the love of Christ and the love for one another. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if between chapter 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians about spiritual gifts that have caused some divisions, there was like a chapter on love or something? Like right in the Oh yeah, there it is. It's chapter 13. We'll get to that next week. So if you're getting nervous because you remember the wars of yesteryear and you remember churches having issues over this whole thing, don't be. Just like we saw Paul say last week, if you're struggling to see clearly on this, imitate me. Imitate our elders. There is a better way. We are a team for the glory of Jesus. So let's dive into part two, the gifts. Part two. This is what it says in verse four. Now, there are a varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all to everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one, by the one Spirit. 
to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So we see here that there is a variety of gifts. A variety of gifts and activities and service that are given by the Holy Spirit to Jesus' followers. And what follows in these verses is a list of a few of them. Now, the first thing that we need to note here as we look at these spiritual gifts is that they are gifts. They're not something that a person earns. They're not something that a person deserves. They are simply a gift of God's grace given so that we might serve others with it. That's it. Recently, I read a story from a bartender who had a man walk into his bar and hand him $40 and say that there was a woman who would be coming in later who was wearing a green hat and a black shirt. And he said that that woman was an absolute fox and that he wanted to buy her drinks. And so the bartender took the man's money and he waited to see if somebody matching that description walked in. And sure enough, a little while later, in walked a woman who was wearing the green hat and the black shirt. And the bartender said, you know, a man came by and he said to tell you you're an absolute fox and wanted to buy your drinks. And she immediately burst out laughing and she said, oh my goodness, that was my husband that you met. Now, when I read the story, first off, I thought, man, he's making all of us dudes look bad because that is a genius move by him. But the other thing that I thought when I read that is, that's in a way what these gifts of grace are to be like. But by the work of Jesus, we are in a loving relationship with God. And we don't do anything to deserve it. We go about our day and he gives these little deposits of grace, these little moments that ought to bring us great joy that would allow us to then share that with others, that he would even want to empower us in this way, ought to be incredibly encouraging. And Paul says the Holy Spirit has given each believer certain gifts, certain divine enablements for the sake of the church. No one seems to be excluded here. They're measured out individually and uniquely to every single Christian. They're like deposits of grace meant to be distributed to those that are around us. Now, with these gifts, there are a number of questions that arise. So I'm going to just try to answer a couple of them for you. One of the questions is, does this list in 1 Corinthians cover all the possible spiritual gifts? No. No. When the Apostle Paul is talking here, he's not giving an exhaustive list. In fact, in Ephesians 4, in Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4, there are other lists of spiritual gifts that include some of these things and then have some different things in there as well. So it wouldn't seem that he's trying to give all the possible gifts. He's just mentioning some of the gifts. Now, there have been some pastors and scholars who've tried to categorize all of the lists. They take the whole list, put them all together, and they say, oh, there's like 30 of them, and some of them are like kingly, some are priestly, some are prophetic. You know, they kind of lump them into these different categories, and I find some of that interesting, and that might be accurate, but at least here what we can see is that there are a variety of gifts that we bring to the table. So that's one question is, do, does this list all the gifts? No. Second question, and this is one that I alluded to before with some of the arguments that have popped up around this. 
are all of these gifts on this particular list still for today? Because there are some who will argue that certain of these gifts no longer are in operation in the church and sort of faded out with the ministry of the apostles. And then there are others who will argue that no, all of these gifts are still in operation today and they don't find any compelling biblical reason to say that they wouldn't be in operation today. Now, I've studied this for for many years and I've looked at this deeply. And what I have found is that the most thoughtful folks on both sides of this argument actually aren't that far apart once they can agree on a few definitions. Now, because the particulars that they're arguing over are more in chapter 14, we'll leave some of that discussion for later. Another question, are these gifts present in someone's life before they are saved? Well, for some of the things that he lists here, it doesn't seem likely. Like prophecy doesn't seem like something a person would have already in operation in their lives and then still have it later as a spiritual gift for the church. Like, I'm not exactly sure how that would work. But then there are other things in some of the other lists where he mentions the gift of teaching, where it makes perfect sense to me that if there were a gifted teacher out there who then became a Christian, that God might use their teaching skills and gifts to serve his church. So I guess the answer to that question is maybe, but Paul never tells us one way or the other explicitly how this all works with what a person's like before they're saved versus after they're saved. He just says to each person is given this gift to serve the church, which brings up the last question. So is it possible to be saved and not have a spiritual gift? Well, this one he does answer, uh, answer rather fairly directly by saying, uh, no. Well, his language is, to each is given. Church is a team sport where everybody is called to bring their gifts to the table. It's like a, making a puzzle, and if there's one piece missing, there's something that's just not quite right about it. We are all pieces to this larger puzzle. I remember hearing a pastor say uh, that Abraham was old, Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was codependent, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair and all kinds of family problems, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was reluctant, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric, Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered, Martha worried a lot, the Samaritan woman had several failed marriages, Zacchaeus was unpopular, Thomas had doubts, Paul had poor health, and Timothy was timid. That's quite a variety of misfits, but God used each one of them in his service, and he'll use you too if you stop making excuses. Well, don't use this as an excuse. I'm not sure I have any gifts. Wrong. Each one of us is given spiritual gifts to serve God's church. And this brings us to one more question, maybe our biggest question when it comes to spiritual gifts. Because what I've said so far is that part one is about glory and part two is about gifts. So my guess is we would think if these are really important things to know about and understand that part three of this text or maybe part three of my sermon anyway ought to be about the the getting, right? Like how do you get these spiritual gifts? How do you discover what gifts you've been given. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says and if he answers this question for us. This is verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm 
not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, it turns out that part three is not getting. Unfortunately for some of us who really want to know how to get them, it is gathering, the gathering. So let's look at this part together. Unlike what our expectation might be of what Paul would write, or maybe our desire of what I might preach, there's nothing in this text that tells us anything about how we should go about discovering what our spiritual gifts are. I mean, it's kind of frustrating. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, don't get me wrong. The Apostle Paul paints this picture of this body working together where each part is important in its own way. Each part requires something a little bit different, but it all works together beautifully. That's awesome. But nowhere does he tell us how we're supposed to find out what our gifts actually are. And I think that herein actually lies the secret to spiritual gifts. The secret is in the gathering. Now, here's what I mean. As a child, I did not need to go to discover what gifts my parents were going to give me for our Christmas celebration. I just needed to show up at the gathering under the tree. I didn't need to snoop around. I didn't need to look in closets. I didn't need to pepper my parents with questions or quiz my siblings. Now, I could give them hints of what I wanted. I could make a Christmas list. I could pray that I would get certain things. But in the end, I would discover or realize my gifts when I showed up at the family gathering underneath the tree. Do you see what I'm saying with this? Pa Paul is saying, listen, you are parts of a body and a body simply works together to respond to the needs that are there. Even without thinking about it, everything in your body works together. Think about if you, um, if you stub your toe. I mean, if you stub your toe, certainly your toe reacts, ouch, that hurts. But you know what else reacts? Your leg, as it pulls up your foot away from whatever was injured. And your hand works as it reaches down and grabs hold of that toe that you've injured. And your eyes work 
as they immediately look to the spot to try to discover what just caused that pain. And your mouth works, I'm sure, shouting out very appropriate words of praise, even in such pain, right? No, your whole body simply reacts to the need of that moment. The different parts of the body are not taking gift discovery tests to figure out what they're supposed to do and how they're shaped. They just move together to meet the moment. My arms don't brag to my legs or want to be my ears. It just works together to meet the needs of the moment. And I think the secret to spiritual gifts is in keeping Jesus' glory at the forefront of our minds and then consistently gathering together with the people of God. And then we will find out what our gifts are, that we are actually beautifully equipped to meet each other's needs. I was talking to a pastor just last week who said that he cannot find a single instance in the entire Bible where it raises up autonomy as a virtue, like this rugged, isolated, individualistic thing. No, no, in the Bible as we look, what we see is community, interdependence, complementarity. We see this in the very nature of God himself, the triune God, who is this interworking three-in-one relationship. This is how we've been designed. And this is how we need to try to help one another. This runs exactly counter to the atheism we talked about last week. To be truly spiritual drives us into the life of the local church as an expression of our commitment to Jesus. The church is his body, and we cannot be spiritual without being in community. How could we? If, if we're going to be shaped, we can't be a trinity by ourselves. We are called to be in communion and community with one another, and we're gifted to serve each other. You know, I totally missed the point of the movie Frozen. Yeah, I know that's an old movie now, and some of us had to watch it so many times and hear the music so many times, we're like, ugh. But, but I completely missed the whole point of that film. My problem in my understanding was this one song that you've heard too many times called uh, Let It Go. And in the song, it says, among other things, let it go, let it go. I'm one with the wind and sky, let it go, let it go, you'll never see me cry. Here I stand and here I stay, let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. You know, when I heard that song so many times outside of the context of the film, it sounded to me like just another classic sort of Disney, I'm going to be me and I'm going to be gifted and it's all about the individual and who cares about my family and I'm the hero. And yet in the context of the movie, it's exactly the opposite. You see, in the movie, the song hits pretty early and it is being sung by well, a uniquely gifted woman who in her misunderstanding of her gifts and maybe in her desire to isolate herself has damaged her entire family and the environment that's around her. In fact, the hero of the story only kind of comes about when her sister, who doesn't have any of those fancy gifts, shows up and offers sacrificial love and care and then that draws her back into this family she was always supposed to be part of. That is our story. In our quest to be ourselves and find our own gifts and want to be the hero, we miss 
the hero. That, that Jesus gave his sacrificial love to draw us to himself, pull us into community, and then empower us to serve one another. It is only when we consistently and humbly gather and stop seeking ourselves and our own unique gifts that we can actually begin to get knit into this better team together. Now, again, I, I think some of you might still want me to tell you what specific needs of the church are so you can step in, or you want me to tell you exactly how to discover your gifts. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, what I would rather do is challenge you with a question, because I have found that I can encourage people and uh, inspire people and maybe even prompt people to do a thing. Meaning, like if I said, at the end of this video, you're going to click at the spot and here are some ways you could serve at our church or something. Some of you would do that. If, if we set out tables out here in the foyer after one of our in-person services and said, hey, we have some specific needs to meet in the church and kids ministry or greeters or safety team or whatever, some people would go ahead and they would do that. If I said, here's a way to discover your spiritual gifts, you could fill out this little thing, some folks would do that. But three weeks from now, very little would have changed in people's hearts because while I can kind of challenge, I can't transform a person's heart. While I can give you a job, I can't really explain to you what's going to meet all of your greatest needs and fit but, you know, your gifting. And our, I don't know all of that. Here's what I know. Show up and ask yourself some questions. And, and let's just ask this question. Instead of looking for ways where you might be special, in what ways can you bless and serve? So instead of thinking about, hmm, how am I made to be special? In what ways can you, right now, bless or serve? Because this is actually the secret. It's interesting that Paul says, when one member's hurting, everybody's hurting. He, he's like, he's trying to get their eyes off of some big thing and like, just look at each other and look at how you can bless them and serve them. Like, show up with a desire to bless others. Ask good questions. Serve where you see need and where it makes sense. I mean, take honest feedback. If you say, hey, I'd like to serve like this. And someone says, I don't think that fits. And maybe like this. Okay. Like, just take honest feedback and do that sort of thing. Slowly but surely, you will start to discover something that other people will call a gift. And you'll look at it and go, well, that's not a gift. That's just normal. No, it's not. It might be normal for you because it's a gift for you, but it's not normal necessarily for the rest of us. Sometimes it's hard to see ourselves accurately, so listen to what the people around you are saying. And eventually, as we start serving in these different ways, then we'll start to go, oh, maybe this is how God uniquely gifted me. What happens a lot of times at church is that people show up and they go, this is, I think this is my gift card. This is what I want my gift. I want to serve like this. And then somebody says, eh, we don't really have the need. Could you do this? And then they get frustrated and they leave. Or, or they, they start to serve in some church program instead of just thinking about the person that's right next to them that they could serve. And they get frustrated. Just to show up, instead of trying to figure out how special you are, and look to bless and serve the people that are sitting right next to you. Do you know that when you slide over in the pews to make room for somebody else, that's like a tiny little act of hospitality. And you're like, yeah, but who cares? Hospitality is mentioned in one of the lists as a spiritual gift. 
When, when you talk to somebody new for the first time, that is also being hospitable. When you take someone to lunch, that is being generous. When you give to an offering, that is being generous. When you share an encouraging or challenging word, that is in some senses a teaching. When you support the leader of your small group, when your family signs up for a short-term mission trip, when you help with kids check-in, when you offer your arm to somebody who's struggling to navigate our parking lot, these things matter and are in some ways just as important as doing something like up front with a microphone. Do you know what happens if somebody comes to this church for the very first time and they go to sit down and the person next to them is rude? It means they are not going to come back to this church. No matter how good the rest of the programming is and the sermon might be, that little act that you can do just in those interactions is going to be something that can truly build them up or drive them away. We are called as a church not to show up as individuals who are all special superheroes, but to give services and activities and gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to us to those that are around us. And so let me just ask you again, can you, instead of looking for ways where you might be, you might be special, can you show up and just simply seek to bless and to serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given each of us these gifts. And God, I thank you that some of us have been able to discover those over time as we've uh, served in different ways and people have spoken into us and given us feedback and all of those things. And I thank you that this is a type of church where so many people are doing those things. But would you allow us to not slip into a spectator mentality but to recognize that you've put us on the team. You saved us from something. You saved us for this eternal, glorious future. But you've also saved and empowered us in the present right now. May we get in step with your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.